It's a humbling passage, isn't it, that we just heard read? Penetrating to the very depth of our soul. You know, prior to listening to those passages from Job read, we sang a song together, a song I enjoy, Speak, O Lord. And there it's, it, it's a song of praying, right? It's a prayer for God to do his work in us. We sang, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. That's what we're praying that God will do in our hearts here every week, right? When, when we gather to uh, worship him, to fellowship with one another, to hear from him through the preaching and teaching of the word. We're asking God to do these things like verse 2, teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and attitudes in the radiance of your purity. And where, where do we see the radiance of purity other than scripture? This is it. This is where we see it. And then the final verse of that song, speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the height of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that echo down throughout eternity. Friends, the reason we gather as Christians um, Sunday after Sunday and sit through sermon after sermon is so that God will do these things for us. This is how God deals with his people. This is how God renews us. This is how God sanctifies us. He takes us by the, by the Holy Spirit into these words that, that we hear through the texts and we're taught what they mean and then we leave hopefully changed, impacted by what we've heard. So I hope that that song that we sang was more than just a a tune to you, but it was actually a prayer that God will be doing his work in your heart as we now approach the word of God and ask him to do what he's promised he would if we would just come. So this morning I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of James. If you don't have a copy, there's one in the pew in front of you probably. So turn with me to James chapter 4. And we're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12. We've prayed that the Holy Spirit would, would take these, these words and, and impact us. And now we're going to trust him by faith that he'll do that. So how do you get a multiple alarm fire? You know what I'm talking about? How do you get a multiple alarm fire? The fire has to be big enough, right, to demand such a thing. And when the fire is big enough, they alert more and more, what? Fire departments, right? So more than just one fire department hears about the fire if it's big enough. If it's big enough, they call a second fire department or a third fire department. So if, you know, your shed catches on fire, it might be a one-alarm fire. But if the Valley Mall catches on fire, it's a three or four or five alarm fire. And everybody's called to, to arms. Today, from these two verses in James chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, we're going to see a three alarm alert given to us from James. Three 
alarming warnings, alarming concerns that James is going to share with us. Follow along and listen as I read. See if you can identify each of these alarms. And then I'm going to proceed to point them out to you and explain them. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So what we have here is is some... penetrating thoughts, alarming thoughts really, that I want you to see clearly. And if indeed you meant what you sang about having the Lord speak to us as we come to receive his holy word, then I'm certain that you'll see in these things and walk away with some benefit. As you know, the, the book of James is a collection of tests, tests of authentic faith. This has not been an easy uh, series to sit through. I, in fact, have heard a few of you say, James used to be my favorite book. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the hope is, is that God will have used his word to identify certain things in your life that needed, need, need to be addressed. And here again today we have something more. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but it seems that the tongue has gotten a lot of attention throughout all these tests. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how many times the tongue is the point of consideration by James? He's mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, you think you're religious and you can't control your tongue? Think again. And then the first 12 verses of chapter 3, he does an expose on the volatility of the tongue. And now here again, he brings it up in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. The tongue, the tongue, the tongue, the tongue. And you're wondering, what is the deal here? Well, what do you think is one of our primary problems in life? You know the answer, so I won't say it. Well, let's continue. Let's continue to look at this. Jesus, Jesus was concerned about the tongue as well. You know, uh, Pastor James here, who authored this, wrote this um, probably because he had heard from, from some of his um, people that, he had, that had been scattered from Jerusalem, these people who were in churches now outside of Jerusalem, and they were you know, sending word back to, to Pastor James about some issues they were having, and so that was on James's mind. And then, of course, Jesus' half-brother Jesus, what he had taught about the tongue was on his mind, and Jesus had much to say about the tongue. Uh, he said the tongue can get you into more than just hot water. Remember what he said about how hot the tongue can make things for us? Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's how much hot water the tongue can get you into. And James has similar warning for us in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. 
So the tongue is an issue, right? We, we got this ongoing problem. James here in, in verse 11 begins the third address to the tongue by saying, do not speak evil against one another. What does it mean to speak evil against others? Well, speaking evil, of course, is a broad category that includes things like slander, gossip, any kind of malicious speech. Anything meant to tear someone else down is included in evil speech. The, the command here forbids any speech, whether it is true or false, which may run a fellow believer down. And so this is, this is just a, a general idea of what it means to speak evil. And according to James, speaking evil demonstrates three alarming attitudes. And I'm going to address each of these uh, one by one, I'm hope, hopefully clearly. But before I, I get to those uh, alarms, I want to just set the stage a little bit for what's happening here. All, all three of these alarming attitudes that I'm going to address uh, reveal a lot about the person who slanders or, or the gossip. Uh, we will notice that speaking evil reveals a deeply prideful attitude. Uh, he identifies the, the common basis of each, of each of these three alarms in the very last question of verse 12. Do you see it there? Do you see the question? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, the, the word you in the original language is placed in the emphatic position, which means it's placed at the beginning of the sentence to highlight the focus of the verse. And so the first word in the original language is you. You are going to judge your neighbor? It, it's like James saying, are you kidding? You are going to judge your neighbor? That's what the emphasis is, is holding for us here. Paul also knew that, that pride was a problem, as James is identifying here. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul said this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So our, our default is thinking highly of ourselves, but both James and Paul and, of course, Jesus say we need to be careful about that. So why do James, Paul, Jesus give us this kind of instruction about the tongue? Well, I think it's because unchecked pride fractures human relationships. Pride is the basis of the things we say. And so each of these authors, Jesus, Jesus didn't author anything, but James and Paul and Jesus said, let's be careful with this because what comes out of your mouth can ruin relationships. So we understand that, that pride must slander, pride must gossip in order to maintain the, the facade of superiority. But humility, on the, other, on the other hand, is accompanied generally with good spirit towards others. Um, humility doesn't need to feel superior to others. Humility isn't threatened by someone else's success in any given area, but pride breeds insecurity and pushes us towards slander to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. Slandering others, judging others, condemning others are, the, are what's in view here. And they're all the fruit of pride and the opposite of loving others. So when you speak evil of others, it's a full-blown waving of the pride flag or a tooting of the arrogance horn, if there are such things. To let everybody know that the person speaking is more important than everybody else in the room. That's what's going on when we see evil speech. 
What does, that, what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, as you've already guessed, even in the book of James, but throughout all of Scripture, it, it speaks a lot about the tongue. Both Old and New Testament covers this issue uh, a lot. You remember Satan spoke evil of God in the Garden of Eden. You remember the story. He told Eve, God knows that you'll be like him. And by inference, he's saying, and he doesn't want the competition. Satan was speaking evil of God in that setting. Satan invented slander. And he encourages us to slander because he knows the devastation that speaking evil causes amongst Christians, amongst anybody for that matter. He's not called the destroyer for no reason, right? Well, let's, let's look at another, I mean, and like I said, it's all over Scripture, but I'm just going to pick one Old Testament passage and one New Testament passage. Old Testament, Psalm, 50, Psalm 15, verses 1 through 3. David uh, is describing here who can fellowship with the Lord, who can be in his presence. He asked the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So the person who actually has a relationship with God, the person who actually walks with him, fellowships with God, is the one who's not slandering. So this gives us an idea of the importance of it for us who would like to worship him. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He's talking to Christians here. Is we need to stop doing this. You know, that's what we used to do as, as people who didn't know Christ. Now that we know Christ, this is something we ought not to do, is what Paul is saying. And the reason, of course, Scripture has so much to say about the tongue is because of that, what I've said, the devastating effects of slander. I, I can tell you um, from the years that I've had uh, marriage counseling with different couples, I would say... 99% of the marriage troubles have to do with the tongue. If, if people would just apply some duct tape to the mouth, their marriages would improve. I'm convinced of it. Uh, but true, seriously, it, it, is, it is the point. People continually discuss, debate, and argue about what you said, what I said. No, you meant this. No, you didn't. You meant that. And it goes on and on and on because of the tongue. Not just in marriages, by the way, but in any relationship. Uh, listen to what Proverbs says um, the tongue causes, um, what problems the tongue causes. A dishonest man spreads strife. A whisperer, or that is a gossip, separates close friends. Have you ever had a friendship ruined because of gossip or something someone said? We all have experience there, don't we? And then the same chapter, Proverbs, or no, actually not Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, the author lists seven things the Lord hates. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The tongue, again, is the issue. And so we have, we have, uh, quite a bit of scripture 
that deals with problems that the tongue creates. We learn that it's not okay to run a person down behind their back, uh, whether the information is true or not. Neither is it okay to run a person down to their face. You know, some people think it's their spiritual gift to make everybody else aware of their faults. Uh, and let me tell you, there is no such spiritual gift as fault finding, even though many seem to think <laughs> that that's what they're gifted with. Many are gifted with that, by the way, but it's not a spiritual gift. The truth is that almost every one of us are painfully aware of our faults, aren't we? Do you need someone reminding you of your faults? Uh, most of us know what they are. Well, there may be an occasion for an honest and frank conversation with a trusted friend over something that's going on in my life that needs to be addressed or, or someone who's applying for a leadership role. Maybe there needs to be some honest and frank conversation with that type of a person. But to randomly dispense our judgmental opinions on or about others really isn't appropriate for a Christian or otherwise. And this destructive speaking evil against others manifests itself in many ways. And I think, you know, I, I say these things uh, just to, to let you know that I've thought about it a little bit, but we all are familiar with this. I mean, I'm pretty certain I don't have to tell you how speaking evil manifests itself in relationships. But let me just say this, um, minimizing someone's accomplishments is speaking evil about them. Minimizing their skills, minimizing their virtues, giving little digs about someone's possessions or lack thereof, someone's relationships, or anything really that casts negative light on an individual is speaking evil. Uh, saying something like, well, it looks like that car might get you to work today. What are you saying? You know, we have a lot of these things that we try to say in jest because we're not brave enough to say them honestly. And so we say things, oh, I'm kidding. Are we? Are we kidding when we say these kind of things? Um, we all know that jest is a powerful tool to communicate hurtful things. Speaking evil against one another can also be done through tone of voice, the rolling of the eyes, even well-planned silence. You ever been around that? Someone's well-planned silence is deafening sometimes. We like to point out the failures of other people. For what reason? To make ourselves feel better about ourselves, right? Like we uh, like to point out the failures of other people's kids because it makes my parenting skills look better than theirs. So we almost enjoy the failure of other people's kids sometimes. And why do we do these things? What, what is it about us that, that makes that kind of thing happen all too often? Of course, the answer, the obvious, most basic, true answer is our hearts, right? The condition of our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever it is that comes out of your mouth, whether it's jest or not, is really from your heart. So your sinful heart is the issue. My sinful heart is the issue. But to, to play this out a bit, it, it is also because we, we feel offended by someone or something that they said or did. And so the first opportunity we get, we're going to, you know, take a chance to get even. Um, 
It includes also trying to be the funny guy in the room, you know, and, and saying something before thinking about it. And, you know, there might not be as much uh, um, evil in that approach, but nevertheless, it hurts people, and so it's evil. Uh, empty talk, just flapping your lips because you don't know what else to do. Um, and all these things, of course, are, are designed um, to elevate self because of this inbred pride problem that we have. Um, Jesus talked about this in Luke 18 when he was talking about a Pharisee that was praying. The Pharisee, Jesus said, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. As if God didn't know the Pharisee's heart. The Pharisee wanted to elevate himself to God. <laughs> uh, so now let's, let's get to the, the three alarms. I've said enough about what I'm talking about, so let's get into these three alarms. And I want you to see what James's um, issue is here, what his point is, and how he explains this weighty problem of evil speech. Again, the verse, the verses, do not speak evil against one another's brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So let's look at the first alarm. This is a, this is a three alarm fire going on here, all right? What's the first alarm? It's this, superior to God's law. Verse 11 says, those of you who speak evil think you're superior to the law of God. This is alarming, isn't it? <laughs> None of us would say, well, when I, when I cut you down yesterday, I was not suggesting that I'm above the law. Not, we, we, would, we wouldn't think we're above the law, but that's in fact what's going on. James is cutting right to the heart of the issue here. These three alarms cuts through all the pretense. And James is letting us know exactly what's going on when we speak evil. You're saying you're superior to God's law. Now, a, a form, let, let me, let me share, walk you through James's logic here. A form of the word judge, for judge, appears six times in these two verses. Six times they, the word judge or a form of that word appears. It's, it has the idea of condemning, of criticalness, criticism. So how is speaking evil against your Christian brother like speaking evil against the law? Well, let's ask this question. How did Jesus define the law? Do you remember when he was asked to do so in Matthew chapter 22? He said, what's the greatest law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. And so Jesus defined the law, summarized the law, by saying, love God and love people. This is how Jesus defined the law. So, is slander loving? Of course it's not loving. Therefore, slandering someone is a failure to obey the law of love according to what Jesus commanded. Paul in Galatians said that love summarizes the whole law. It summarizes, if you, so what do you think Paul was thinking about? It summarizes the Ten Commandments. 
Love summarizes the Ten Commandments. How so? If you haven't thought about this before, this might be interesting. The first four commandments deal with how to love God appropriately. The last six commandments of the ten talk about how to love people appropriately. You want to know how to love God? Uh, commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4. You want to know how to love people? Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That's how you love God. So if you break the law or if you slander, you're breaking the law of love is James's logic. He says, if anyone violates God's law, they're claiming to be superior to God's law and not bound by it. The offender is disrespecting God's law and acting as if it is unworthy of his attention. I don't have to keep that. I'm, I'm, I'm me, is what James is saying. Now, let me tell you what James isn't saying, because there seems to be uh, a sufficient amount of confusion here, and we don't need more of it. So, let me tell you what James isn't saying. He isn't saying that Christians are never to make judgments about others, or correct others, or confront others' sin. That is not what he's saying. Some believe that there is never a time or a place to judge others because Jesus said in Matthew 7, what do he say? Don't judge lest you be judged. Right? Remember that? And they use that to defend or criticize anybody, including churches, who will point out sin in people's lives. That is not what James is talking about. I think I can, I can prove it to you here. First, by going to the context of Matthew 7. Where Jesus, was, where Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, he was talking about the person who has this massive log stuck in their eye while they're trying to pick out a splinter from their brother's eye. He's talking to that guy with the log in his eye, don't be so quick to judge. Look in the mirror. That's what he was talking about. Um, James, Paul, Jesus, none of them forbid biblical judging of one another. In fact, all three of them required, require it within the church. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, go to him and do what? Point it out. And that's when you start hearing these cries, oh, don't be so judgmental. Don't. Well, wait a minute. What did Jesus mean when he said, if your brother sins against you, go point it out to him? He meant to judge rightly. Jesus even said that. Stop judging wrongly, judge rightly. And then, of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he told the church to bring judgment on the man in their church who was sinning. There's, there's all sorts of examples of godly biblical judgment. Um, for example, in, in Matthew 7:15, Jesus said to be wary of false teachers. How are, and, and so did Peter and so did Jude, by the way. So how are we to be wary of false teachers if we don't judge what they're saying? We have to be judging. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, that we're to examine the fruit in each other's lives to determine spiritual authenticity. How are you going to do that if you don't judge? Judgment is required. What the Bible forbids isn't judging, but judgmentalism. Critical judgmentalism is what's being forbidden here. Not godly, biblical judgment. When, when we do this 
judgmentalism, uh, condemnation. It demonstrates by our words that the law seems to be unnecessary to us at that moment, invalid for our circumstances. It doesn't apply to me right now. I'm going to actually step above the law here and, and do what it forbids to make sure that you know how I feel about you. That's putting yourself above the law. You're putting yourself, you think you're superior to God's law. So, so James is addressing any action, any words that would be unkind, unloving towards a fellow believer. So if you think, if, if, you're, if you do this, you're breaking that royal law that James talks about in 2.8. That's the law of love, which means you break all of God's laws, which means you're above it in your own eyes, in your own mind. And that's an alarming attitude, isn't it? That's the first alarm. Are you superior to the law? Well, secondly, let's look at the second alarm. Are you superior to God's people? That's the second alarm that we see and hear. You really think you're superior to God's people? Of course, we know one of the most damaging things to any relationship is hurtful words, right? Critical words, sharp, critical, unkind words that break down any relationship that they come into. Words are what dissolve marriages. Words, harsh words are what crush families. Evil words are what ruin good churches. Which is, by the way, why we have included in our membership covenant uh, the statement that I will not gossip at Sun Valley Church. Every year, those of you who are members of this church sign that document. You promise not to gossip. Why do we put that in there? Why is it included? Why is this passage here in James 4? Why does Ephesians 4 exist? Why does Matthew 7 exist? It's because hurtful words destroy the very thing God wants us to be doing with each other. Building deep relationships, meaningful relationships. And evil words destroy those things. Now, Peter makes it clear that we should expect slander from the outside, right? 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when, not if, but when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it's going to happen, but it shouldn't happen in the church according to all of these biblical authors. It's going to happen from outside the church, but never should it be happening. It shouldn't be expected here, all right? We should be safe here is what we're hearing. Ephesians 4, 29, we read this earlier in the day. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Evil speech tears down. Evil speech tears apart. This corrupting talk, it, it corrupts relationships. Notice at the end of verse 12, a new word for the passage. He uses the word neighbor. He's been talking about brother, brother this, brother that, for the entire chapter, and now he gets here and he uses the word neighbor. Why do you think he's doing that? Remember, <laughs> nothing is just coincidence here. Why did the Holy Spirit direct James to use the word neighbor in this passage? Well, uh, think about this for a second. What did Jesus say 
when he repeated or summarized the law. Did he say, love your brother as yourself? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. James wants us to think back to what Jesus said, Jesus' command. The neighbor is the one that reminds us of that. And then also that reminds us of what Moses said back in Leviticus 19. He said, where God told Moses to speak to the people of Israel, love your neighbor, which was what Jesus was repeating, by the way, in Matthew 22. See, James is using this word strategically to get us thinking about what Jesus commanded, what God the Father commanded through Moses. This isn't new territory, in other words. This is something we've always been told, we've all been familiar with. Love your neighbor. And if you speak evil against them, you're not loving your neighbor. You're condemning them. You're judging them. I'm, I'm for one, I'm very thankful that I'm not going to be the one who stands in judgment of anybody on that great day. I, I wonder, are you, what are, you, are you happy about that? That you're not going to be the judge? They're not going to line up in front of you and you're going to have to make a judgment? No. I'm thankful that's not going to be me. Sometimes, you know, as often as we sin with our mouth in this way, we try to minimize it by saying, well, everybody does this. You know, we, we might want to think twice about this in the future when we're tempted to gossip or to slander because of the severity of this sin. This sin is severe in God's eyes. James would say that the sin of speaking evil, that is slandering, condemning, gossiping, is one of the worst possible sins because it exalts self above God's law. It, it, it exalts self above God's people. And now here in the, in the third alarm, it exalts self above God himself. God himself, it's superior to God. This is a pretty significant jump if we think it is our place to slander people or speak evil about them, we are actually putting ourselves above God. And I think James is saying, this is severe. This is the same trick that Satan tried in eternity past and got him kicked out of heaven. And you see, the Bible is full of scripture that communicates the transcendence of God, right? He's not like us. He does not answer to us. He is infinitely greater than us in every way, which is what we just heard from, from Job chapter 38. God is above us in every way. Where were you when, when God created the heavens and the earth? So there is no way to get around the fact that when we break God's law, we are saying in that moment that we really don't care. We don't think God is above us. We don't think we need to submit to him. When we speak evil of others, we're just placing ourselves above the only one who can actually do the judging. When we, when we condemn one another, we are placing ourselves above the only one who has the right to condemn, which is God. The last question of verse 12, I think, is penetrating. Who are you to judge your neighbor? He's asking, are you the one to take God's place as judge? You know, we may be able to identify some obvious external sins in each other's lives, 
But who can judge the heart? Who can judge the thoughts and motives of others? When we speak evil or slander other believers, we have in that moment placed ourselves above God's law and in so doing placed ourselves above God himself, who's the author of that law. I think, of course, if you think about it, most of these, most, if not all of our sins, come out of this particular reality. We think that we really don't need to submit to God in this particular area because my passions, my desires are you know, pushing me in this direction, so it must be more important than what God has said about it. <clears throat> you remember what David uh, said in Psalm 51 when he repented of his sin against Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband? You remember that? He said, against you and you only have I sinned, speaking to God. That's always baffled me. I said, well, what, what about the sin against Bathsheba? What about the sin against Uriah? What about the sin against the entire nation of Israel, O king? And yet, God seems to accept his prayer when he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Because Nathan comes along and he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? He didn't say, why have you despised Uriah? Why have you, he didn't ask, why have you despised Bathsheba? He didn't ask, why have you decide, defi, um, defied the people of God or despised the people of God? He says this, Nathan, to King David, why have you despised the word of the Lord? It's a sin against God. So James essentially says in verse 12 that there is only one God and you are not him. You have no right to judge people. There's only one judge. You're not him. Only one God is lawgiver and judge because only God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only God truly knows our motives and he's never fooled. He always corrects justly, always knows the whole story, always sees through every facade. You remember this, when Samuel was trying to determine who was going to be the next king of Israel, and he was impressed with certain people, and God wasn't. In 1 Samuel 16, he said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, God perfectly applies his judgments because he perfectly knows everything about us. So what are you supposed to do about this three alarm fire that's going on. Um, it's the problem of evil speech is a damning sin as we just heard. And unfortunately, if scripture is correct, uh, we all fail in this area. Remember what James said earlier in his book, chapter one, if, if you don't fail in what you say, then you're a perfect man or woman. And if, if you're not perfect, then you fail in what you say. Fail, we're failing from what we say. We all stand guilty. And so what can be done about this? Let me conclude our sermon this morning by pointing you to the gospel. Look closely at verse 12 with me. I want to jump into the gospel here by something he says. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. This lawgiver and judge evidently is able to save 
or to destroy. Um, I think here James holds out a carrot of hope. Um, which do you prefer, being saved or destroyed? Yeah, amen, being saved. That's what I want. I don't want to be destroyed. I want to be saved. I'm sure all of you would choose that over destruction. This is why God came to earth, wasn't it? Matthew chapter 1, we read, Mary will bear a son, speaking, the angel speaking to Mary, she will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them or make intercession for them. Friends, this is the saving that's necessary for all of us. Even though this is a book um, full of, of tests of authentic faith, uh, whether or not you're saved, this, con this continues to be an ongoing struggle for us. And we have here this, these wonderful verses in front of us that remind us that there is a pardon for those who will come to Christ. Do you remember hearing this morning this receiving of grace from 1 Peter 2? For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. No evil was in his mouth. Think of all that he endured from family and friend and foe. Think of all he endured and not one sinful word came out of his mouth. That's hard to understand. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I'm pretty sure we're told that he could have called a thousand angels. Jesus said he could have called a legion of angels at any time he wanted. I would have been calling them real early. I would have been saying things to Pilate. I would have sent his hair on fire. And Jesus was there quiet. It says like a lamb to the slaughter. Why? He was in the right Whatever he decided to say would have been right. Why didn't he say something? At least, if it's going to be harsh, make it true. But he didn't say a thing. Why? Because if he would have defended himself, he would have gotten off. And if he would have gotten off, he wouldn't have died on the cross. If he wouldn't have died on the cross, we would be stuck in our sin. There would be no hope. For us, for us evil speakers. <laughs> Our only hope is that he went to the cross to bear the penalty of our evil speech. And he went there silently, not only to give us an example, but to guarantee that he died upon that tree. We have an amazing Savior. We have some responsibilities as Christians, to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to set these, this corrupting talk, this evil speech, this slander, this gossip, set it aside. That is our responsibility. 
and I think it's, it's part of the sanctifying process that we get better and better at doing that. But when we, when we fail, we end up having to come face to face with the, the seriousness of this sin and lean heavily on the mercy of God our Savior. Realizing that we have an advocate with the Father who is daily, it says, as I just read to you, who is daily, this advocate, our Savior Jesus Christ, is daily praying for us, interceding for us, reminding the Father of his work for us on Calvary. Friends, have you put in with Christ? Have you confessed to him your failure? Have you confessed your corrupt talk to your brother and sister who you've offended? Have you come to this Savior who is able to save? If you have, then, friends, continue to put off that old garment, that old nature. Continue to pursue Christ. Continue to lean on him. Continue to trust that the Holy, Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is doing a work of grace in your heart and life. Ask people to hold you accountable. It's usually the, the closest people to you that are the ones who pay the price, isn't it? For our tongues. And they're the ones who can be a great encouragement to you. If you have a believing spouse, man, what a blessing from God to receive some encouragement from them in this matter. But as we work together as Christians, as, as a local body, uh, trying to please the Lord in these things, trying to not grieve him because of the corrupting speech that just naturally flows from us. Um, we are each other's best ally in this, in this battle. So let's encourage one another by being quick to turn a deaf ear to anything that smells like gossip. Um, be quick to be the person who builds up especially when the door's been opened to tear down. And you know what, that, you know what I mean, right? So someone introduces the, the, the opportunity to really rip into somebody that is way better than you, and, and you want to even the score here a little bit. Why not, why not build them up? Why not go out of your way? Why don't we go out of our way? In fact, James says, outdo one another in honor. The, the contest isn't who can tear each other down the quickest. According to James, I mean, according to Paul in, in Romans 12, the contest is who can do the best in building up. That's the contest. So let's use our tongues to bring glory to Christ and encouragement to each other. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary. We have so much to be thankful for because of our sin. But we do want to grow. We do want to have the word of Christ work a miracle of grace in our lives so that we'll be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, today than we were yesterday. 
that we can look forward to the day when uh, we are a source of great joy and encouragement to those around us, constantly bringing hope, constantly bringing um, love and joy and peace by what is said, by what comes out of our mouth. God, I pray that you would bless Sun Valley Church, that we would be uh, just a, a beacon of love in this valley, that we would be, we would feel safe here with each other and that we would go out of our way to build each other up. Bless us, Father, as we pursue these things for the glory of Christ and for our own and each other's joy. Amen.